0: Hello, welcome to Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, a podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. In this episode, called simply Opening Day 1870-1885, we will go back in time and explore Opening Day in Cincinnati before all the celebrations began to take hold in 1886 and focus on the Red Stockings after their first season in 1869. I like this period because very little has been written or spoken about the early days of professional baseball in Cincinnati, and so I hope you enjoy a little history lesson. As you likely remember, the first all-professional team, the Red Stockings, went undefeated in 1869 And so Cincinnati baseball fans looked forward to the second all-professional season in 1870. My headline for 1870s is Winning Games But Losing the Team. In early 1870, advertisements in the Cincinnati Enquirer foreshadowed the special nature of the first game of the season. On April 15, just four days before the Red Stockings' home exhibition game, a notice appeared that tickets could be purchased that afternoon at the Gibson Hotel, which was a local hotel downtown, for the grand opening game of the 9 of 69. Only a small crowd showed up, though, as many fans were put off by the ticket price increase to 50 cents. The official season began six days later with an away game in Louisville, Kentucky, kicking off a two-week tour of the South. This is one example of the Reds being scheduled to begin a season on the road. It has happened just twice, the most recent in 1888. In any event, the undefeated streak from 1869 was extended in Louisville with a 94-7 to victory. Of course, a score like that is unheard of today. After that victory, the question remained as to how long the Red Stockings could continue their undefeated streak in the 1870 season. The first home game was described as, quote, first grand game of the season of 1870, unquote. The next day, the club added to the hype by proclaiming the game as, quote, the second grand game, unquote. After that, the team headed east for another road trip, still undefeated. On May 20, the Cincinnati Commercial newspaper, one of many newspapers in Cincinnati at the time, used the nickname Reds for the first time known in a Cincinnati publication. Though it was used frequently by the commercial newspaper and other newspapers thereafter, the team did not adopt the shortened name until 1882. After running the undefeated streak to 81 games, including the undefeated games from 1869, The Red Stockings lost to the Athletics of Brooklyn in a most unusual way on June 14, 1870. The game was tied after nine innings, and extra innings in those days were played only if both teams agreed. Extra innings occurred infrequently, and so everyone assumed that this game had ended. Most of the 9,000 fans began to leave the ballpark and the game's one umpire left the field along with the Athletics. The Red Stockings manager, however, Harry Wright, wanted to have a perfect season in 1870 without any ties and he convinced the Athletics to return and continue the game. The Reds looked like they were going to continue their streak by scoring two runs in the top of the 11th inning. But an error on a double play in the bottom of the inning resulted in an 8-7 victory for the Athletics. This first-ever loss for the Red Stockings came one year and 45 days after the first opening day. The team would lose five more games that season, but it still finished with the best record in professional baseball with 67 wins to its credit. Because there was no professional league and there were no clear rules about how to crown a champion, several teams claimed the title. Ironically, the season finale would be the last professional game for Cincinnati until 1876. Despite its success on the field, the Red Stockings were a struggling commercial enterprise. During the 1869 season, the team had earned a profit of only $1.39 of meeting its $9,400 payroll. Revenues were not significantly higher in 1870, and the club decided it could not afford to join the professional league that started to form after the 1870 season. 1871 expenses were projected to exceed $30,000, and club president A.P. Bonte declared, quote, You can talk about the glory of the red stockings and the nine that know no defeat, but you must put your hands in your pockets and pay the bills. You cannot run the club on glory, unquote. It would be five more years until Cincinnati returned to playing professional baseball. Of note during this period without a professional team was the dedication of Fountain Square in 1871, a site in downtown Cincinnati that would become the future site of many baseball celebrations. From 1871 to 1875, the Cincinnati Baseball Club played as an amateur club and only reestablished itself as a professional team in August of 1875. That team's opener on August 9 was against the Chicago White Stockings in Ludlow, Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati. A week later, the Boston Red Stockings, everybody seemed to like the name Stockings, also came the Ludlow Grounds, and an overflow crowd of 5,000 people watched an exhibition game in which Boston, the best team in the nation at the time, won by a score of 15 to five. The Boston team was captained by Harry Wright, the original manager of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. From the founding of the first professional league in 1871. Until 1900, baseball in America was much like America itself. It was on the move. The country was expanding its footprint, spreading from the east to the wild, wild west as outlaws, the U.S. Army, homesteaders, and Native Americans jockeyed for land. Seven states were added to the nation during that time. Colorado, the Dakotas, Montana, Washington, Idaho, and Wyoming. Cincinnati, initially dubbed the Queen City of the West, could hardly be considered West by 1900. Much like the nation that was stretching beyond its original borders, professional baseball was going through growing pains of its own. Leagues came and went and professional teams were launched in one city only to die or move to another city. Throughout the latter part of the 19th century, professional baseball struggled for stability. So let's jump to 1876 when Cincinnati again had a professional team. My headline for 1876 is, The National League beckons. In January of 1876, Chicago businessman William Halbert approached several professional clubs with plans for a new league. His vision was to have a stronger central authority and to include only teams from cities with a population exceeding 75,000 people. The four Western clubs, Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Louisville, met secretly in Louisville to lay the foundation for league. In early February, Halbert then met with representatives of four Eastern teams and enlisted them to to join the new National League. They were the Philadelphia Athletics, the Boston Red Stockings, the Hartford Dark Blues, and Mutual of New York. These eight teams formed the National League of Baseball Clubs. After joining the National League on February 2, Cincinnati's first league game occurred on April 25, 1876. The only mention of the game in the Cincinnati Enquirer that day was an ad announcing, quote, grand opening day, unquote. It contained a train schedule for the game with cars reserved for ladies. The Cincinnati Daily Star, another newspaper in those days in Cincinnati, reported the occasion under the simple headline, quote, baseball. And they put a little dash between those two words. Quote, the season of important baseball Matches commences today. The Cincinnati Reds and St. Louis Browns play this afternoon at the Stockyard Grounds. Our boys were the favorites in the polls shown at the Galt House and the Empire Saloon last night. Unquote. The previous evening's betters were correct as the Reds opened the season with a 2-1 to victory thanks to, quote, splendid playing, unquote, as reported by the Enquirer the next day. Here's the quote from the paper. The prettiest and best game of baseball played in Cincinnati since the disbanding of the old red stockings occurred on the new grounds of the new Cincinnati team yesterday. Our home club met the crack St. Louis Brown stockings and walked away with them to the tune of 2-1. to one. There is not a bit of doubt in the minds of those who were present at the game yesterday that Cincinnati has a club this year that she may well be proud of. Its players are, with three exceptions, (laughs) young and without a professional record. But they were picked out of semi-professional players and brought together by the same unfailing fellows who discovered the players of the famous Red Stockings of 1869, who went through the whole season that year without losing a game? And if the present club is not as strong as Harry Wright's old team, it is not far behind it. Let's jump forward to 1870 with the headline of "Rain, Rain: Go Away." Heavy rains forced the Reds to postpone the opening series of 1877 that was scheduled to begin on May 3 in Cincinnati. Instead, they opened on the road in Louisville a week later. Under new player manager Lip Pike, the major league's first Jewish player, the Reds opened their second National League season with a 15-10 win. Four days later, the team opened the home portion of its 60-game schedule, losing 24-6 in a game lasting 3 hours and 10 minutes. It was probably the longest season opener in the 19th century, as later games tended to last 1.5 to 2.5 hours. Unfortunately, early box scores in the papers do not list time of game. Now, only 3,000 fans showed up for the first home game, but the Enquirer described the crowd size as a flattering attendance. However, the local press was not impressed with the on-field action, calling it a long, tiresome game. As one reporter noted, quote, A few aching hearts will be relieved by the profoundly wise and philosophic reflection this morning that the commercial prosperity and artistic progress of Cincinnati are not dependent upon the success of the combination of ball players that bear her name. <laughs> the 18-run defeat is the worst opening day result in Reds history. From a crowd standpoint, the opener was the high point of the season. As the Red Stockings would go on the draw fewer than 1,000 fans per game that season. You know, one thing of note in that season is that the Reds featured a new look later under new ownership. According to the Cincinnati Enquirer, quote, the Cincinnati's wear party colored caps with players wearing different hats red, white, Blue, green, white with a red stripe, red with a white stripe, blue and white, white and black, and yellow and black. The Enquirer reported that the players, quote, look cute, period, unquote. So the next season is 1878, and I titled this section, Fans Turn Out for the First Game. The Enquirer previewed previewed the opener on May 1. Quote, At 3 o'clock this afternoon, the league season will open at three points. In Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and Providence. It is not our province to prophesize how the three games will terminate. We can only give, as a pointer of public opinion, the sale of pools last night at the Arctic and other pool rooms where the betting was $10 to $7 on the Cincinnati's, unquote. The optimism of the gamblers was rewarded with a 6-4 to victory. A local reporter also noted, quote, a lovelier day for out-of-door sports never shown more than our May Day yesterday, unquote. The enquirer described the large crowd that was in attendance. Quote Before the days of turnstiles a crowd would have gone down in newspaper history at about thirty five hundred, but the turnstiles counted sixteen hundred, and probably two hundred more came in through the carriage gate. Both pavilions were comfortably filled, though four or five hundred more could have been squeezed in about 200, were in the grandstand, many of whom were ladies. The large collection of buggies and carriages in the lower part of the grounds bespoke a good tone for the crowd gathered there. There was plenty of enthusiasm as the game proceeded, though the game was slow and slogging, The first game of this season appears to have received slightly more attention than previous opening games during the 1870s, at least from the standpoint of crowd size. The additional interest was probably the result of exhibition games being reported in the newspapers on a more regular basis before the official season began. Another factor was the nice weather for the first championship game of the season. First championship game was a phrase often used to distinguish the first official game of the season from the exhibition games. The crowd size for this first game was rivaled only by attendance at games on holidays during the season, and particularly July 4. Despite the strong turnout, there was no opening day festivities preceding the first pitch. Our title for 1879, the next year in our journey, is Game? What game? Because opening day almost went unnoticed. The May 1 Enquirer buried a small ad and one sentence on the last page of the eight-page newspaper announcing the season opener. Quote, Baseball opening of the league season today, unquote. Whether because of that single mention in the Enquirer or other factors, only 1,200 fans ventured out to Avenue Grounds to witness a come-from-behind victory over Troy of New York, another new entry in the National League as entries kind of came and went in the National League during the late 1870s. Small crowds had been blamed for the Red Stockings' poor play in several exhibition games in Cincinnati prior to the first regular game. Despite the scarcity of coverage on the morning of the game, the Reds, as well as their opponent, received generous praise in the next morning's enquire. Quote, Yesterday, The National League baseball season opened all along the line with games at Cincinnati, Chicago, Cleveland, and Buffalo. The game between the Cincinnati's and Troy City Club in this city was one that, though not brilliant, was most exciting until the last man was out. The Cincinnati's, it was apparent to all, had no easy walk away. The Troy men are all young, athletic, and earnest ball players. They are by no means the weak club they are rated generally, and if the other new league clubs show up equally well at the end of the year, they must play a good stout game. The visitors, by their quiet, gentlemanly behavior on the field, won friends by the hundreds, and their success at certain periods of the game was just as loudly applauded as that of the home club. Unquote. The article went on to comment about the facilities at Avenue Grounds, noting, quote, the shade of the grandstand in the South Pavilion was uncomfortable and the sunny seats of the North Pavilion were in demand. Unquote. Pitcher Will White's off-season commitment to practicing was also duly noted. Quote, Will White deserves credit for his fine pitching. He has certainly not lost any of his skills and seems to have profited by that hole in his brother's barn door, unquote. A reference to Will Wright apparently practicing his pitching, throwing balls at the barn. Finally, the Enquirer also reported the crowd's happiness over a game-winning catch. This is practically poetry. Quote, Troy's heavy batter stepped to the plate while the audience held their breath. He finally lifted a long foul fly to left field, which Dickerson captured on a dead run, making as pretty a play as was ever seen in the outfields of that ground the crowd relieved themselves by a long and loud shout of applause and left the ground well-pleased, unquote. The Cincinnati Commercial newspaper encouraged the directors, or essentially the owners, of the ball club to induce the attendance of ladies at games, quote, as it adds to the respectability of the national pastime, unquote. The paper also noted that if the old standbys who had regularly attended games show, "like punctuality in visiting churches on Sundays, it quote, "would guarantee them front seats in the celestial choir and the ownership of a choice harp." Different days, indeed. Now as we move in to the 1880s, the very first season began as a very unusual season, which I name, booted from the National League. The opening of the 1880 National League season was proclaimed on May 1 in the Cincinnati Daily Star, with no mention in the Enquirer. The Daily Star headlined the season opener as follows, quote, the league season to open today between the Cincinnati's and Chicago's. Little did readers of the Daily Star realize what was going to happen that season. The Red Stockings would suffer through a mediocre record, there would be three changes in the club's presidency, and the team would finish in last place and be expelled from the league. Nonetheless, until those events came to pass, the Reds christened a new ballpark on the north side of Bank Street, called the Bank Street Grounds which replaced Avenue Grounds. The Bank Street Grounds were closer to the center of the city, and the new park included a scoreboard that displayed the name of each player as he came to bat. I'll note that identifying players by uniform numbers was not introduced until 1932, believe it or not. The scoreboard also reported scores for games going on in other cities. Those scores were sent and received by Telegraph. The opponent in the opening game was the eventual 1880 National League champion, the Chicago White Stockings. The Chicago team won the coin toss, earning the right to bat in the bottom rather than the top of the inning. I'll note that the home team of games did not automatically bat in the bottom of innings until 1950, some 70 years later. This seemingly small victory in the coin toss was fortuitous, as Chicago scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth to win the game 4-3. to this was after the Red Stockings had scored two runs in the top of the eighth inning to go ahead 3-2. to two. The Enquirer reported, quote, But the game was not yet won, for in the last inning, Corcoran, of the White Stockings, opened for his side with a hit to right. Then Sam Wright got rattled and fumbled Burns' hit, allowing that young man to reach first. Quest's hit to right. Letting Corcoran and Burns, who had kept booming right along to bring in the winning run for Manning, in trying to cut him off, threw the ball in home some six feet over catcher Clapp's head. Unquote. Now, despite the attraction of the new Bank Street facility and fine weather for the 1880 opener, only 2,038 fans came to the ballpark attendance declined from there as the reds averaged only 538 fans per game that entire season when the reds closed the 1880 season with a 2 to nothing win over cleveland only 183 spectators were present now on a side note the 1880 season is noted for the establishment of the reserve clause in professional baseball Under this new system, each team was allowed to protect five players for the next season, contrary to the previous practice, which allowed players to be free agents and switch teams from season to season if they so desired. The Reserve Clause was meant to help financially strap teams from losing star players to higher bidders. Since most rosters contained only 11 or 12 players, The Reserve Clause protected nearly half of the team on the club's behalf. The Reserve Clause was broadened to include the entire roster in 1883, and the Reserve Clause remained in place until 1975. In 1975, it was abolished by the courts, and limited free agency was returned to baseball through collective bargaining with the players' union. A significant development occurred on October 6, 1880, when the league announced new rules prohibiting teams from renting their ballparks for use on Sundays. The rules also banned the selling of alcoholic beverages. These rules were directed at the Reds and the Reds declared their refusal to abide by them. They were then unceremoniously expelled from the National League. The ban on beer sales was the death knell to the franchise. The German immigrants in Cincinnati who supported baseball expected that beer would be served at any and every event. Fans loved baseball, but not at the expense of giving up a beer. A Cincinnati newspaper writer fumed, quote, Puritanical Worcester, one of the cities in the league, is not liberal Cincinnati by a jugful. And what is sauce for Worcester is wind for the Queen City. Beer and Sunday amusement have become a popular necessity, unquote. Now, after getting expelled from the National League, the headline for 1881 is, A new league comes on the scene. The Red Stockings did not play in 1881, but a meeting at Cincinnati's Gibson Hotel in downtown on November 8 set the stage for competition between the seven-year-old National League and a new professional league, the American Association. The founding of the American Association meant that the two leagues had to compete for fans and the attention of the public. In part, this competition contributed to the fanfare that later came to be associated with opening day. Now, the historic Gibson Hotel, the site of this momentous meeting, had opened in 1849 on Walnut Street between 4th and 5th Streets southeast of Fountain Square. It was considered the best house in the city Within a year, according to the Fort Wayne Times and the Zanesville Courier, two out-of-town newspapers, the hotel was named after a Scottish immigrant, Peter Gibson, who provided financing for the hotel. The Gibson became the preferred venue for celebrations and banquets during the Red Stockings' first season in 1869 and Fans of that team would escort the players to the hotel after home victories. Later, during the 1890s, the Gibson hosted both the Cincinnati team and its opening day opponent after both teams would parade through the city and then have a pregame luncheon at the hotel. For the historic November 8th meeting, local sports writer Oliver Perry Kaler convened representatives of six cities to form the new league. By design, the founders intended for the new league to be distinguishable in many ways from what they considered to be the straight-laced National League. The new league established teams in what the National League derisively called river cities, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, Louisville, and St. Louis. The River Cities label was intentionally meant to imply that there were low moral and social standards in those cities. In contrast to the National League, the American Association offered its patrons cheaper ticket prices, Sunday games, and alcoholic beverages. Its ticket price of 25 cents compared favorably with the National League standard 50 cents, which was a hefty sum for many fans at the time. With these fan-friendly policies in place, the American Association was the world's first professional sports league designed to cater to a blue-collar fan base. The Association soon became known as the Beer and Whiskey League, another contemptuous label applied by National League owners. Despite the association's policy with fans, however, chaos reigned as the which cities fielded teams. As many as 25 different cities hosted American Association teams, some for as short as a single season. Several teams disbanded or defected to the National League, including the Reds in 1889. As a result of the instability, the association shut down after the 1891 season the association is not directly related to today's american league but the two league structure formed in 1881 foreshadowed the major leagues in the 20th and 21st centuries so professional baseball returned to cincinnati in 1882 and i call opening day in 1882 if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. The first ever American Association game was simply referred to as the, quote, opening of the American Championship, unquote, in the May 2 edition of the Enquirer. While this game received barely a mention, the paper devoted considerable attention to the opening games of the well-established National League that occurred the day before. In describing the opening game of the new American Association League, the Enquirer noted that the, quote, Cincinnati and Allegheny, Allegheny meaning Pittsburgh, teams opened the American championship race in this city, and the contest will undoubtedly be a very interesting one, unquote. This opener featured the Cincinnati's and attracted 1,500 spectators. In reporting on the game, the Enquirer dismissively reported its assessment of the team's play. Quote, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Unquote. The article continued, they are young and giddy and need some advice to try again. It was the best thing that could happen to them to be beaten by the Alleghenies. It will prove to them that what is worth having is worth playing for. It was the opening game, and there were naturally several men quite nervous in the field. There is no use of singling out any one player and casting upon him the burden of the defeat of the team. It could, in this instance, be divided equally among the nine men. Period. Unquote. The starting pitcher for that first association game, all-time Reds great Will White, ironically ended up as the winning pitcher in 40 of the team's 55 wins, which was the most in the league that year, that the 55 wins that is, and the Reds won the first championship in the new American Association. Following that championship season in 1882, We headline the 1883 season as, and they raised the flag. There was some hoopla surrounding the first game in 1883, but it did not necessarily concern the beginning of that season. Rather, the celebration was all about the previous championship season. The ad in the May 1 morning Enquirer proclaimed, not just that the Cincinnati's would play that afternoon against the St. Louis Club, but that the Cincinnati champions would be playing at the Cincinnati Baseball Park. Advance tickets were sold at Holly's, a local store, after which patrons could take the Bay Miller or Clark streetcars to the game. The story in the newspaper was short, but it highlighted the reason for the celebration. Quote, the championship flag pennant, which arrived last Saturday, will be flaunted to the breeze shortly after three o'clock. The flag staff has been planted at the north end of the open seats, and the flag is already fitted to the Ballyards, ready to be run up at a moment's notice. Unquote. The paper predicted that a large crowd, quote, will undoubtedly be on hand to witness the first championship game of 1883. Unquote. The festivities for the flag raising, called, quote, the price of so many hard-earned victories, unquote, went off as planned, and, quote, a great cheer was sent heavenward from the throng of spectators who wished that it might remain where it is for another year at least, unquote. The game itself was a picnic for the Red Stockings until St. Louis made the game closer and errors revealed the beautiful uncertainties of baseball. Quote, When the Cincinnati's started in the majority, the crowd was misled in the thinking that the game would be transposed into a general picnic. For without special effort, the home lads got in four runs and with proper base running could have added at least one more to their score during the first three innings. The picnic business was reversed a little after the third inning. And the Cincinnati's took their turn at making a series of provokingly bad errors. And those, combined with timely hits, enabled the visitors to tie the score and to illustrate to the crowd the beautiful uncertainties of the national game. Unquote. The Reds, however, sent the crowd home quote, amid great applause, unquote. Again, another quote from the Enquirer. The chances were 10-1 to 1 against the Cincinnati's when they went to bat in the last inning, but they proved that they were able to pull out of a small hole by some hard wrapping which netted the requisite number of runs, unquote. So we move to 1884, the second last season, that we will talk about in this episode. I headline this opener as Disasters of Several Kinds. The season opener in 1884 was hardly noticed, following on the heels of one of the worst floods in the city's history. The Ohio River crested at 71 and three quarters feet in February 1884, causing thousands to be homeless in Cincinnati and across the river in Newport, Kentucky. The Enquirer covered the rise of the river for weeks, and the February 13 headline aptly summed up the despair. Quote, in large capital letters, DESTRUCTION, and then, the unprecedented tragedy of the river, ruin and desolation sweeping through the Ohio Valley. Unquote. When the waters began to finally recede two days later, the Enquirer declared, quote, A brighter day has dawned. The long looked for cold wave came and brought the desired results. Yesterday at noon, the river reached the highest stage ever known. At half past twelve, and again at one, it remained the same. An anxious populace stood breathless. The bulletin at two o'clock showed a decrease of a quarter of an inch. Hope was again revived. The river is falling, was the joyous cry that passed from lip to lip and was heard on every side. Unquote. the Reds had no championship flag to entice fans to come to the first game on May one, but they did open a new ballpark called League Park at the corner of Finley Street and Western Avenue. the same site that would later be home to Crosley Field. many, if not all, of the three thousand two hundred patrons who attended the game against Columbus likely wish they had stayed home as a portion of the newly built grandstand collapsed, causing several people to be seriously injured. Others, quote, made a narrow escape with their lives, unquote, according to the Enquirer. The Reds paid the injured patrons medical bills. The customary ad had appeared announcing the Opening of the championship season, but there was no special mention of the Reds' first game other than noting it was one of six games that day to formally open the American Association season. Even before the grandstand collapse, the crowd did not enjoy much of the game because the dimensions of the new field caused balls to be lost when they went out of play. The the Enquire unleashed. It's sarcasm again in reporting on the game. Quote, the game was tiresome by reason of the fact that the ball was knocked over the fence so many times. The short right field and the little distance from the baselines to the buildings make such things possible on the new grounds. Lots of time was lost in this manner, and it took three balls to finish out the game the Cincinnati American Club will have to start a baseball factory here as it will require about an average of five balls for each game. Unquote. You know, you wonder what the Enquirer staff would say today, or would say back then, I'm sorry, if they only knew that today 60 to 70 baseballs are used in every Major League Baseball game. And that Rawlings Sporting Goods produces nearly 1 million official Major League Baseballs each year. As unhappy as the Cincinnati fans were about the season's first game, a much lighter mood prevailed in Columbus, the site of the opponent. A special dispatch, The Enquirer, declared that, The city of Columbus is wild tonight over the success of the Columbus Baseball Club at Cincinnati the Columbus boys made bets with Cincinnati men largely by wire today and are ahead more than they ever were before, unquote. Betting on baseball, even among the players themselves, was commonplace until the 1920s. The practice was curtailed after the Black Sox scandal of 1919 when certain Chicago White Sox players were accused of deliberately losing the World Series to the reds at the behest of gamblers now even the most die hard baseball fans are unaware of a player by the name of fleet walker fleet walker was the first african american to play in the professional leagues walker made his debut in cincinnati on may 9, 1884 he played for toledo a new American Association team, and while Jackie Robinson of the Brooklyn Dodgers is typically credited with breaking the color barrier in the big leagues, Walker had actually done so 63 years earlier. Of course, Major League Baseball does not really recognize baseball before 1900 as Major League Baseball. Our last opening day to explore today is 1885, and we will call this segment Three Cheers for the Umpire? The April 18, 1885 Enquirer hyped the first game with its banner headline across the top of page two. It read, Cincinnati Baseball Park, today, 3 o'clock p.m., First championship game, Cincinnati versus Louisville. No such banner had appeared in the papers in previous years, but this type of headline became commonplace on each day of the first game of the season thereafter. The only other special mention of the first game in the newspaper that day concerned a well known and beloved umpire, John Kelly who was scheduled to oversee the game. Unfortunately, rain postponed the game, and the Falls City team, as Louisville was known in those days, hosted the Reds on Sunday, April 19 instead. This was the second time the Reds had opened the season away from Cincinnati due to rain. A Sunday game was controversial, as some cities and states barred baseball games on Sunday if admission was charged. Louisville had no such law. And the change in venue certainly benefited the Kentucky City, as a huge crowd of 8,000 turned out largely to see the Reds. The April 20 write-up in the Enquirer noted, quote, The visitors from Cincinnati were loudly cheered when they made their appearance and the Cincinnati's were liberally applauded at the conclusion of the game, unquote. The Reds played their home opener on April 20, 1885, in front of a much smaller crowd. In addition to commenting on the team's uniforms, the Enquirer article the next day highlighted the fans' esteem for Kelly, the popular umpire. Quote, in the neighborhood of 2,500 people, witnessed the contest and saw the Reds win a ball game from the Kentuckians in a finely played, though not very exciting game. Both teams shone resplendent in new uniforms. The old colors, red and white, which have always been the standbys with these two organizations, still continue in favor. The reception of Kelly, the umpire, was in the nature of an ovation. He is very popular in Cincinnati, and as he stepped out to call the game, most of the spectators stood on their feet, hats and handkerchiefs were waved while they cheered him to the echo. Unquote. I think that's the last time an umpire was saluted to start a baseball season. Anyway, there you have it. A short history lesson on professional baseball and, in some ways, opening day in Cincinnati in the 15 years following the first ever all professional team in 1869. I hope you enjoyed this episode about the years before the celebrations surrounding opening day really took hold. In coming episodes, We will have some guests to discuss opening day. We will explore later periods of opening day history. When the city turned opening day into a celebration that has grown exponentially to the current state of affairs that sees citywide celebrations for our one of a kind holiday. I hope you will tune in again as we approach opening day. This is Randy Freaking signing off and... In the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, So long, everybody.